We're delighted you've joined us for this edition of the Barcelona Virtual Podcast on European Marketing and Innovation. In our 53rd episode, we'll be talking with Portuguese innovator, Kwame Ferreira, in a thought-provoking live session about creativity, problem-solving, and synthetic users. Sounds promising, Sonia. I'm standing in for Paul, who's away for a few weeks in Ireland. After which, I'm sure he will return with a host of new ideas. I think you're right about that. I've seen it before, George. There's something about connecting anew with his ancestral homeland that revitalizes Paul. And as a matter of fact, that very subject of identity and origins ties into the conversation he had with Kwame. He recorded it just before leaving. Not to mention the topic of synthetic users, our guest's newest venture. The name alone has me quite intrigued. Well, I'd say you're all in for a treat, as we say back home. From the sound booth, I had to remind myself to concentrate on the taping. It was that interesting. Kwame is pretty amazing, a true innovator. We share those insights and additional resources in the program notes for this episode. Our listeners and viewers can find them on our blog at blog.bevirtual.com. Just look for Season 5, Episode 7. And check out our live session video of this premium interview in September on the BV YouTube channel. It will certainly be inspiring. Let's listen in. The following content is brought to you by the BV Innovation Lab. Voice services, AI, virtual reality, and neuromarketing are only a few of the ways we help you innovate in a safe space. To learn more, go to lab.bevirtual.com. That's lab.bevirtual.com. At the BV Innovation Lab, we bring you the future today. Benvindo, Kwame. Welcome. We are so grateful for your time and for the fact that it was even possible for the two of us to sit down during this very busy vacation period. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, you know, there are many users that are going to want us to, uh, to start talking about synthetic users right away. I know it's been making waves. There was a recent mention in Science Magazine. Uh, but I think it's more important for people to get to know you better first. So I'd like to see to my audience, you know, just a little patience. We'll get there. So um, let's start about how we met. And when I heard you speak in Lisbon, there were two words that occurred to me about you, poet and prophet. <laughs> and, you know, I also work with words. So I would say it would be a, a shame to break the alliteration of the P, but given technology's presence here, there's another P, by the way, would I have your permission if I were to describe you as a hybrid? And if not, how? Uh, I mean, for sure, you, you may describe me however you feel like. Um, the poet and prophet, I'm not so sure about the prophet side, perhaps a little bit more sure about the poet side. And the reason being, I'm not a big believer in prophecy. I believe we create the future we want, and it's in that creative process that we um, that we find ourselves, right? And so it, it's less about pointing where we want to go or creating a narrative about where we should be heading towards and more about creating, right? Creating that future that we do want. So yeah, I do have more of an issue with prophecy or with profit. Poetry as we are language-based beings. Um, everything we do is, is really very anchored 
in that fact, the fact that we are language-based. Um, and so poetry is that ability we have to play with words, right? And see what worlds and what, uh, what new stories they put together. So yeah, mm -hmm. I think, I think there's, there's a bit of poetry in all of us if we are able to step back a little and look at the, uh, the sentences that our actions construe. Well, I find that refreshing because we live in a world of so much hype and labels and monikers. And I am also uh, obviously a lover of the word. <laughs> so before we move on, and you know, I'm always very interested in knowing outside of the English speaking world, the meanings of names that are, you know, not in the typical register of English names, right? So uh, Kwame, does that have a specific particular meaning, either literally or when your parents named you Kwame? And I hope I'm saying it correctly, by the way. <laughs> yeah, Kwame is fine. My parents were very much infatuated with Kwame Nkrumah. He was the first president of a liberated African country, Ghana, um, in 69. And so, yeah, I was given his name. It was either Kwame Nkrumah or Ho Chi Minh. Um, I, think I, I think I did well there, or they did well. You don't really choose your name. And yeah, it's in Ghana, you... You get named by the day of the week that you're born. And so if you're born on a Friday, you're called Kofi. Um, Kwame is a person that was born on a Saturday. Yeah, unfortunately, I was born on a Sunday. So my parents got that one wrong. But <laughs> but yeah, the name stuck, I guess. Very interesting. Very interesting. Well, you know, when my assistant Caleb was helping me prepare this live session with you, uh, his comment after he read, your introduction that you wrote on your LinkedIn is, I really like this guy. And as an old uh, advertising copywriter, I have to say, I have to uh, agree with them. There's no staled, canned promotional prose there. It's pure storytelling. And it was very, very refreshing. So why don't we begin here in this first part um, with you sharing a bit more, you know, just continuing from that Saturday or that Sunday with your parents when you came to planet Earth, sharing your own origin stories, we say, um, that made you who you are today. So you want me to share an origin story? Um, I'm happy, happy to share um, a little bit if it's not already publicly disclosed. I was born in Angola. My parents were filmmakers. They were documenting some of the tribes, especially in the southern part of the country. Um, the country had recently gained its independence and it was trying to assess its cultural diversity. So yes, yeah, so I was born there. We then moved to Brazil. My brother was born in Brazil. So we moved around a lot and we eventually ended up in the south of Portugal. And I was talking to my mother just this weekend, actually, and she was saying that when we moved to the south of Portugal, we didn't really have electricity. And I was uh, terribly afraid of the dark, which is something I have no recollection of. So yeah, we moved to the south of Portugal. My mother started a restaurant in the mountains, a bit of a hippie place in an otherwise very conservative area um, where, you know, women did not go out alone without their husbands. There was a lot of black veiling, you know, the Arabs had been in this part of the, the world for, for, yeah, a little over 700 years. So um, there was definitely a lot of that aesthetics going on and, and that culture as well. I guess that's my origin. I, I had a very fortunate and idyllic upbringing in the mountains. And yeah, very strong relationships, very good friends that I still treasure to this day. 
and then I obviously after after a while you get to explore the world just like my parents had done and I was off I was off to Lisbon I uh, studied a little in Berlin I moved to the US so I've been a little bit all over the world and I would consider myself very much a citizen of the world in the sense that although I, I feel I do have roots and I am quite grounded in that particular area of the south of Portugal and you know the taste the language um, the uh, the smells I am at home in many different places around the world and so yeah I've been very privileged uh, to have led an interesting life in that respect. Yes I, I'm very glad that you're mentioning nature that is in the story that you tell on your LinkedIn page and you know being from Barcelona well I'm an honorary citizen after 30 some years here with the Sagrada Familia the masterpiece of Antoni Gaudí you know this is uh, also a poet and a creator intensely inspired by nature and I just think that it definitely leaves its mark on all of us who have had the privilege of you know touching nature living it etc do you see that maybe as a final word for this first segment and then we'll move on to the exploration of much of that creativity how do you uh, see that nature may have shaped the person you are I think we do live in a world that is very mediated we put a lot of stuff in between ourselves and, and the natural world and that's how we've built our civilization very much in a war against nature right for every little product we create every little service there's a little hold somewhere in this planet and that's why we've you know for the past um 50 years now we've been talking about the impact that we have in in the natural world and how we need to uh, drive towards a more regenerative approach for me nature is part of my origin story it's you know we used to take horses and go to school right like it's it's a very um I felt very connected to my environment and I was surrounded with people who lived off the land, right? So nature is just an integral part of my upbringing. How do I take it forward and how do I embody it? A few years ago, I, when I started creating, I started creating products and services under the auspices of user-centered design or, you know, human-centered design. There's a, a whole bunch of different terms for that and it's just this process whereby you put the user at the center of the creative process and then you cater to its every whims when i started impossible we quickly moved towards planet-centric design which now people do call life-centered design as well at the time we coined planet-centric design and the reason we did so was because i feel like we were not really being ambitious enough we were just catering to to that baby at the center that was just you know crying out for i want food right now okay here's you know here's uber i want uh, yeah i want i want to watch my films right now i don't want to leave my place okay here is netflix so there's this whole culture of convenience that is antithetic to um to a deeper connection with nature and i think it really stems from a lack of ambition and i think if we are to be a little bit more ambitious, then we will reconnect with nature, right? But we need to be a little bit more ambitious and not as lazy as we've been in terms of the products and services we create. So nature is that goal that keeps you ambitious. You know, it's the, how do we return to nature? How do we perform that full circle, you know, that Alan MacArthur 
so well describes um, her work. You know, how do we make it truly circular? We haven't. It hasn't been a dialogue. It's been a monologue from from one species to all the other species. And yeah, so nature for me is that uh, ambitious environment that we need to return to in many ways, again and again. You know, Kwame, I'm certain that many of our users, it's an international audience, and those who are entrepreneurs, uh, they founded startups themselves. They're definitely going to sit up and listen to this part of our chat together. As you see, I, I'm continuing my effort to define you per se, both for myself and for the audience. And that's actually, as we will see as we continue our conversation, an interesting thread that's going to wind itself through everything that we're saying until we arrive at the concept of synthetic users. So, you know, I'm half Irish, so that makes me dangerous. <laughs> so I would like to play a game with you, if that's okay. Go ahead. All right. For the sake of the exercise, I am going to define you in front of our audience as a serial entrepreneur, you know, and that's a very positive thing. And nothing like, you know, terrible things that other serial people do. So if you're fine with being temporarily uh, tagged as a serial entrepreneur, let's go. What I'm going to do in this game is simply say the domains of the companies you've either founded or you helped start. And I'd like you to respond by simply stating one sentence, uh, perhaps even just a word or a fragment, but nothing more. Just when I hear this, this is the way I respond. So the vinylfactory.com. In one word, uh, my reaction. Or uh, one sentence. In one sentence. Um, the opposite of digital, human sound. There was a time when I, you know, I was, I was a little bit tired of digital and having, having done so many um, digital products, I, I wanted a bit of a break from digital and the furthest okay. way I could get to was vinyl. Okay. Was vinyl. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we have a joke here in the agency because uh, when I say that I'm going to say one sentence and it's been eight, I just tell myself, that's a, the short version. <laughs> so that is a short, uh, version, short version short version very good uh enchufada.com um techno electronic dance music from the outskirts of luanda to lisbon and from lisbon to the world wiresglasses.com a a pair of glasses that has one wire and that will last forever. And yeah, I'm wearing them. Um, you can replace the lenses and the frames, but the wire will remain the same. Okay. Bondtouch.com. This is one of my favorites. Um, a company that creates products that break distance, that make distance much more human and bearable. Okay, here I'm going to give you a certain license. I'm going to do a gesture. Uh, for those who are listening, maybe jogging or, or doing the dishes or <laughs> wherever, I'm touching my heart and I'm going bo-boom, bo-boom, bo-boom. Is that related to that particular initiative of yours? Yeah, but that's that's a, a product called Bond Heart. Um, and the idea there, so Bond Touches started out as a pair of bracelets, bracelets that you give to your loved one you keep one for yourself when you touch the bracelet your loved one feels the touch with bond heart the idea was to capture 
heartbeats from your loved one so you can store and then you can feel their heartbeats um, whenever you really want to connect with them and so you're carrying them carrying them around independent all right and the last but certainly not least impossible.com a group of um friends and engineers marketeers product people come together to create products that i guess both people and planets want okay so in the list that we just heard with your responses would you have a favorite there would that possibly be impossible.com is now giving life to even more projects or might it be another now there's there's no favorite they're all they're all part of a journey right and they're different episodes in in the same film and although i am a you know a, a director in that film it's really about the team right it's really about people coming together in order to create these scenes that you know you pull it all together it might make some sense you maybe you can call it a film but you know like they have merit in their own right as independent scenes so yeah that's how i would see it impossible is is the collective right it's the group of people who come together to actually do this that i am fortunate to lead but yeah i'm just one of the one of the team i guess okay well that pulls it together quite well and thank you very much for playing along i'm you know a little crazy sometimes if they let me <laughs> but i think it's given us all a better feeling for your activity as we get now into the area of entrepreneurship as a european innovator perhaps now in the next section we can take a closer look at your mission very much a marketing term but i'm certain that you define that in a different way so let's look at your mission and how you discovered it Kwame, uh, speaking of missions, mine is quite clear today. I would simply like to understand better how you think. <laughs> what is it? You got me quite intrigued, actually. Exactly that jingles and jangles inside of you producing yet another never-before-seen solution. And uh, I'm using that word solution on purpose because I have heard you describe yourself as a problem solver. Um what jingles inside me what tickles my fancy as they say in that beautiful island um the other beautiful island i know you are irish and that's a, an equally <laughs> beautiful one um so what tickles my fancy i do consider myself a problem solver and i guess the best way to describe how i think is i try to be very receptive to the world around me empathetic i try to listen before i speak and i think if you do that as a constant exercise then you will come across a whole bunch of problems that you might be drawn towards solving and so it's i think if you're able to slow down a little your thinking changes and right you become more of a witness to your own thought processes you become less of the user at the center of the creative process and you start seeing that there are other people out there that have issues and not only people right that there are issues that go beyond just human issues so yeah i guess that's i i, I had good mentors i had people who taught me well in that respect and and i am following their footsteps you know so yeah i was lucky enough 
I guess that's the secret to my, if there's a secret, there is no secret. You don't really choose who you are, right? So yeah, no, that's a little window into how I think. Uh, it's a good question. I've never really been asked that. I also think it's an impossible question to answer, you know? And <laughs> so if it all sounds a little like uh, BS, I, I do apologize. <laughs> that's marketing's fault. But, you know, at the risk of sounding like a flatterer, and that is in no way, shape, or form the case, you're actually in the company of quite wise men because you just paraphrased King Solomon of Israel. You know, it's a matter to listen before speaking and things like that in the Proverbs. So makes a lot of sense. And definitely we discover new things. However, let's put it this way. This world is not as ideal as we would like it to be. So let's consider that one of our listeners hearing us right now has listened really had just an amazing summer, you know, disconnected, but then reconnected, saw new things, comes home with this great idea, you know, advances to start with, you know, to his partner or to his family. And at that exact moment, you know, when she reveals her idea, she immediately crashes against this wall of the obstacles to innovating. And many of you <laughs> listening to Kwame and to me, you can, I'm sure you're shaking your head. So just for fun, yesterday, I decided to ask chat GPT about these hindrances. And I was amazed to see 13 of them. Interesting number, by the way, for instance, many of those that we already know, resistance to change, check, bureaucracy, check, lack of resources, check, lack of skill sets, check, the list goes on and on. So I'm also intrigued as I listen to you to see how you might see these obstacles. Would you consider them a danger to innovation? You know, that they're stoppers, as we say in Newspeak and the business world, or are they blessings in disguise? Well, they are what they, they are the enablers, right? They are what makes innovation possible. And without those obstacles, there is no innovation. So. It's the very scarcity of resources that drives people to invent. And if you even look at the VC model that was epitomized in Silicon Valley, it's a very wealthy environment. Still, the very start is always around scarcity, scarcity of resources. No startup starts, or no successful startup starts with the abundance of people and talent and and money. Everything starts with, you know, a couple of founders, a small team, bootstrapped, you know, the old garage analogy that's been worn to pieces, but it still holds mm -hmm. true. It's very much like that. Um, and so if you want to innovate, or if you want to see innovation in action, you will look for the people who best deal with adversity, right? Who are able to take a situation and there's their own skill set, you know, and there's an engineering mindset that comes that always comes to play of creating solutions, right? Quickly creating solutions, validating those, testing those out. They don't work, move on. And so it's a very iterative process. It's a painful process. It needs to be fast. You need to, you know, fail fast is the other message that we hear a lot. So yeah, it's, you know, it's really all about obstacles. I don't have a rosy perspective of the planet. I don't know. I remember going to the Amazon many years ago for the first time and coming away with, oh my God, they have a really hard life. There's malaria, there's hunger, child mortality through the roof. So if you look at all the indexes of human comfort, most of the world is, is struggling, right? We've done very well. If you look at globally, I'm with Pinker on that front, but, but it is, 
it's a tough world out there. And it's that very toughness that should, that should be triggering if you want to innovate. That's exactly what should move you towards more efficient solutions and towards creativity. I think we need to embrace that. Hey, and I, I, uh, I don't know why it occurs to me this way, but uh, wild animals in the Amazon or in any country, wild animals are wild. Life is exactly as you just described it. And if anyone among our viewers or listeners feels very much in love with Instagram as a fellow entrepreneur, my most sincere advice would be flee from there. Get out of there as fast as you can. It's not all roses, as Kwame aptly says. With that said, let me kind of make a confession between us and we'll follow this thought. Call me a romantic, but when I read your LinkedIn storytelling and I discovered that you are, quote, a professor who likes to fly helicopters, for some reason it made me think of the author of Le Petit Prince, you know, uh, the little prince, Antoine de Exupéry. Exupéry. I hope I said that correctly. That's always that why on the end has always befuddled me. <laughs> but as you know, he was a French aviator as well, uh, the author of that bestseller. Do you get up in the clouds to try to get above obstacles, see the road ahead, roadblocks? Other than what you just told us, you recognize it as a driving force of innovation. You actually celebrate it. You surround yourself with people that are going to be like-minded and get through it. I particularly do go up into an uh, imaginary helicopter myself, and I tell my staff, the team here in the agency, because sometimes it helps to at least get out of the moment where you're quite frazzled, and you see the mountain range after all of those dips ahead that's just glorious, and if the sun is on it, and it, that refreshes you. But that's me. Do you get up in the helicopter? How do you try to get out of those moments that are a little less clear and a little more challenging and sometimes even desperate? I don't think you need a helicopter to do that. I was fortunate enough that when I was growing up, helicopters saved our farm many times. And when I got the chance, I learned how to fly with a view to, you know, one day helping out, putting out some of these fires. Definitely not the most planet-centric activity I've done, although it's something I do love. We don't really go above the clouds in helicopters. If you're a helicopter pilot, you'll know that the clouds are really... <laughs> Um, really dangerous. <laughs> Just a little side note there. Um, I don't know if the human brain needs, you know, that old metaphor of having to step back, look at the big picture. I don't know if it works that way as somebody who's been around for a while now. I think it's really more about changing your environment and it's more changing perspective rather than stepping back. So I would say that the exercise is really uh, to do something that you don't ordinarily do because you know we're creatures of habits our brains have neurological pathways that are very ingrained and they get more crystallized over time Guy Debord and the, the situationists in the 70s in France they talked a lot about that you know they even try to stop people from going to work using their usual route right they were quite the activists back then artists activists I've always liked that I like the idea of introducing a certain level of randomness in order to change your perspective. And I try to do that with my teams. I think it's really the best way to cultivate resilience. You know, yeah, you're looking at the big picture, so what, right? If you really look at innovation, innovation is done from the ground up, right? So you need to start micro and start solving one problem at a time, being very focused. And as you start building and creating, you will start stepping back, right? So that's what I've created. That's how it impacts the environment. Um, Much like an artist, then, yeah, he'll step back. Right? Yeah, an artist yeah. will step back for a moment. In, yeah, 
Yeah, and my, and yeah, but it's stepping back from your creation uh, rather than, okay, guys, let's all step back now and let's find the problem. It doesn't really work that way. It's actually the opposite. You need to dive into an environment, be immersed in its problem space, right? And be empathetic to its needs and then start solving for it. So if you want to innovate, I would actually caution around stepping back too early. It's really not about stepping back. It's about, you know, putting in the work and putting in the time, right? Like if you want to do something properly, it will take you 10 years at least to do something properly over and over again to develop a certain skill set that you can then apply depending on the skill set to a number of situations. So everything starts very micro, right? Very at the ground level. And so my advice would actually be against stepping back too early and dive into a situation and really explore that environment and try and come up with solutions for it, for the problems that environment faces. That would be my take on a helicopter flying. Be weary of the clouds and land as often as you, as you can. Explore the area and then take off again, go off uh, to another beach or another meadow. I think that's the way to really fly. Okay. Well, it seems to me, I mean, I can imagine you flying. I don't know if you do spirals in the air, but at least, you know, you let me play with you a little earlier, uh, the association game. So here we're in Europe. We're talking about marketing and innovation in Europe. That's the focus of this podcast. It's why many of us come around and sit together and talk about great things with great minds like your own. So my question now, landing the helicopter, and, uh, you talked about the nuts and bolts of hard work, you know, up to 10 years of focus, do it right, get it right. Let's talk again about playfulness. Is Europe innovative and are Europeans able to innovate playing as I see you do? That is, I don't know if that's a good question. Like Europe, we're talking about what, 470 million people talking about a whole bunch of different countries with, uh, you know, an assortment of cheeses that could fill a whole supermarket dedicated to that if you wanted to. There's just so much diversity. What is being in European? I remember I started in, in a fine arts university studying design, and I was fortunate enough to go on an Erasmus. Erasmus is an exchange program students have in European universities. So I got to go to Berlin and study in Berlin. And I truly felt from an identity perspective, I started feeling very European interacting with other countries. European as opposed to American. I think the American ideology is a little bit more consistent. Europeans drink from or feed themselves more from diversity, diversity of countries. You drive for 100 miles and you have a different language and a different cuisine, right? In the US, you drive for 100 miles and you still haven't gotten to where you need to. There's a different morphology, um, the environments are different. So when you talk about being European versus being American versus being African, what does European really mean? And to me, it means that diversity, that plurality of, of voices all coming together. You know, it doesn't always work, but we do enjoy that diversity and that heterogeneous environment as opposed to a homogenous one. Um, innovation in a heterogeneous environment has its challenges, as we know, right? So in the US, it's deploy capital in different ways. It's, I guess, less bureaucratic. It's much more homogenous. So you focus more on the problem that you're trying to solve and the company that you've just created, as opposed to where that company is located. If it is going to be incorporated in Delaware for legal reasons, might be operating somewhere else, but that's not really the point. The template has been set. 
I don't think Europe has a template. If you're in Portugal, you have labor laws that are different from France, right? All those can be little hindrances that you unfortunately need to focus on when you're starting to build a company and when you're creating something. The environment where you're at will have some sort of impact. I don't know if I feel European. I spent 15 years commuting between San Francisco and London. So it's a hard question. That's a hard question to answer. I don't know if I am driving you where you need to go. Well, Europeans, we like to laugh. And, you know, people always say Germans are so serious. No, I know a lot of very funny Germans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that kind of homogenized system in the U.S. versus the heterogeneous system with red tape, despite the EU and all of that, it seems to take some of the fun out of it. It makes it a little harder to play. That's a good segue. My last question for you in this third segment, you know, I kind of tricked you. There is one initiative of yours that I had left off of the list when we played our association game, and it's called Midnight Cuddles. What does oh. that project mean to you? And uh, you can use Cuddles. more than one uh, sentence. The Midnight Cuddles project I started with my kids. I have an eight-year-old kid. Her name is Wild, and I just thought I'd start a podcast with her about where we, you know, we travel the world. We capture heartbeats um, of species that are going extinct, of uh, groups of people, of friends, and we make stories around that. That's it. It's a, kind of an experimental podcast. It's super short episodes, like 10 minutes short, because I don't have much patience. In that respect, I like my storytelling to be crisp and to the point. So yeah, Midnight um, Cuddles, it's when I, we, I co-parent my kids, get her one week on, one week off. And I guess it's a way for us to keep, to create our story together and to crystallize it. I've only released a couple of episodes. I have a few more to release. I have them finished. I just haven't uh, had the time yet to put them out there. People seem to enjoy it and I'm happy for it. Well, I do uh, hope that you continue to share it. I thank you for making that public and we will include that. This is a good moment also to mention the program notes for this episode which is season five, episode seven with Kwame. We'll put a link both to that podcast with his daughter and then the other companies and initiatives he has mentioned, as well as other things that will be more pertinent in our next section. So enjoy Midnight Cuddles. You'll see that she thinks her dad is just amazing. If there's one word that comes to mind when I think of that project, it is heartbeat. Wow. I can only say that I'm feeling quite well fed. You know, a good conversation is as good as a good red wine or an excellent cheese. And uh, I would gladly talk to you for three hours, Kwame. But let's get back to the point for our busy decision maker listeners. You know, it's stunning how quickly we are embracing virtual beings and we're delighted by robots. And when doubts assail me about this, and I do have my doubts, even though we work with AI quite a bit in the agency, I often think of the famous words of that little boy in the film, The Sixth Sense, and I quote, I see dead people. So here's a question. Why are we as human beings so seduced by the idea of ever perfecting facsimiles of ourselves when we are the original creation, quote unquote, are we not... And won't we ever be truly alive when compared to them? Are they alive or are they dead people? What do you think? Uh, Will they ever be alive, yeah, truly alive? 
I think I would frame the question slightly different. It's like, what do you want out of them, right? If you, okay. Out of it, out of them, out of... And, and right now they're a tool, right? We, my team and myself, we see them as a tool and a tool that serves our purposes. I think we're still quite far from AGI, you know, artificial general intelligence. It's definitely on its way to AGI, but it's not yet there. And so when I listen to Gary Marcus and his following, which is quite substantial, and I do like listening to him at times, I'm not a, a doomer, right? I don't see this as a technology that is going to wipe out mankind. I've been through a few paradigm shifts. I remember growing up, my father is German and he invested in computers very early on. And so we had these computers like, wow, this is amazing. And he invested because he had the construction firm and he thought it would accelerate his own processes. And at the same time, we were learning how to operate these machines, play and spend time with them. And, you know, at the time I wasn't actually earning money with those machines. They were mostly sucking time, double dragons and all these crazy games. Um, but there was, there was definitely a paradigm shift there. And there was a little distance put between ourselves and, and nature, right? We definitely spent a lot of time with that machine. And then we had paradigm shift just a few years after with the internet. And that was like, whoa, what are we going to do about it? That time I was a little bit more sentient. And that became a, a really big deal. When I started my professional life, the mobile revolution had just started. Um, and so I could really see that paradigm shift. And we embraced that at a company called Fjord. And after the mobile revolution, you had this cloud thing, which was just another fancy name for foster digital transformation, mostly for corporations out there. And there was a slight paradigm shift there. And now we have AI and before the computer or more or less at the same time, you had nuclear, right? And nuclear now, some people were like, this is going to change the world. And some people said, this is going to completely wipe us out. Let's stop it. Probably one of the biggest mistakes we've ever done was to stop it because it's a much more viable way of harnessing energy than fossil fuels, right? And I think of AI in very much the same terms. I think you can look at it as, okay, once we started anthropomorphizing this with Optimus and real world robotics that go just beyond the level of language, then yes, you start going into the military taking over and some of the applications and you start to see people being killed because of AI operated autonomous agents. But there's just so, there's a world out there of solutions that can be accelerated because of AI that we just don't talk about because you start focusing on this is going to be the end of the world. We need to pause this. There's no way we're going to pause this. So I'm really not in the camp of, you know, the end of the world. AI is going to destroy us. If you really want to step back, you can have this perspective of, okay, we are life's creation, right? Life started out very unicellular, very simply, and become a little bit more complex. And out of that complexity, we have, you know, through the laws of evolution, very Darwinian, we've come to the state where we are. And now we've created this new architecture, neural architecture, and that is superhuman, right? In the sense that it's obviously learned everything that's publicly available out there and sometimes not publicly available out there. So it's fed on our knowledge base 
And now it's taking it a step further in terms of speed, in terms of the complexity of interactions, and therefore to create the diversity of potential outputs. And perhaps that is the next stage of humanity who will eventually leave this planet and become a multi-planetary species because our bodies and our minds are, are conscripted to this architecture that is not very star traveling friendly, right? Whereas if you send out a probe, it will, might actually be able to last a few million years and get to the next solar system. The, uh, I love that term, by the way, star traveling friendly. That could be a good yeah, uh, line at a bar, you know? Uh, you look really nice. Uh, <laughs> you're amazing, but are you star traveling friendly? <laughs> no, but, so I didn't mean to digress. No, no, not at all. That was me digressing. So that's stepping back, right? And perhaps that's the way we are going to exit this planet and go on to other planets. It's not as in the architecture that we find ourselves in right now. But having said that, if we go back to the micro again, like everyday problems, right? Like these neural networks, these large language models allow us to simulate in order to accelerate. And that's so powerful, right? To be able to see what's going to happen. Like if you want to create a new drug, it's just in the healthcare space. It's just so costly. It takes so much time. If you're able to accelerate that by a factor of 10, right? It's just the amount of beneficial output that you can get for mankind is just overwhelming. I find that much more attractive than, oh my God, you know, let's go back to James Cameron's Terminator and let's stick to that because that's, um, that's where we viscerally should be. I don't think we should be there. I think we should be at a space where we are right now, where it's like a, another Cambrian revolution uh, where we have this explosion of startups that are solving problems using this new tool and this new toolkit. And they're doing so much more energy efficiently at a fraction of the cost it used to take and ultimately gets passed on to the consumer. So I see 99.9% .9 benefits and 0.01, what's the opposite of benefits in this particular case, they're like doomish scenarios, right? In other words, it's not all about terrible, awful, scary robot dogs and black mirror, you know, <laughs> that doesn't have to be the way it ends. And, you know, we've talked very well in the first parts of our chat about the fact that innovation is a response to a need. We have a proverb in English, which is necessity is a mother of invention. Now, for those who have been so patient wanting to hear Kwame talk about his newest venture, which is called Synthetic Users. I venture to say, paraphrasing what you just said about trying things out and simulating them before a final product or solution, I think you are quite possibly going to abolish another hat phrase, which is, oh, we need to do that by trial and error. Well, it doesn't seem so now that we have synthetic users to help us. Can you tell us now how the idea occurred to you, what exactly it is, how users can interact with synthetic users? Who are they? Who are they? Who are the synthetic users? <laughs> Over to you. Synthetic users. I would start by saying, well, who are they? They're large language model that has been trained on the whole of the internet. So it's all of us, right? It's, um, I contain multitudes, that old um, mm -hmm. adage. How did synthetic users start? It started from us trying to solve our own problems. I've been doing products for now, 20 years now. And if you look at a product development journey from inception all the way to going to market, one of the most painful areas was always user research. 
And it was painful because recruiting was expensive, time-consuming. And sometimes people didn't show up. They weren't really very candid. You always have, mostly when you perform qualitative research, you always have one or two people in your sample that are there for the money. They will answer those questions very quickly and that's it. And then you had to take all that. You had to synthesize it. And then from that, you would start to gather some insight that you would then feed your team would be eagerly waiting two months later, right? It's like, here's the insight and let's do something about it. Um, so true, the, so true. So we literally, with my team, um, I just looked at that. I was with my co-founder, Hugo, who has a, a background in research, a deep background in research. And we said, look, we can do something about it. At the same time, we were seeing a lot of literature around how synthetic to organic parity was actually there in loads of human dimensions, you know, namely moral dimensions. So we started playing. We tested it ourselves. We have UX researchers in-house in some of our companies. And so we were able to very quickly look at that parity. And the reality is that that parity was there. It wasn't there at the very beginning because it's really all about how you talk to how you interact with a large language model type of large language model that you're actually using, you're going to get different outputs. So if you give everything to the large language model, what will happen is that the large language model will already know the solution. And so it will try to please you, right? So there's a lot of engineering to actually chain the correct sequence of questions to pose in order to get the answers that one needs. It's a lot harder than people think it is because a lot of people think, oh, you're just, that's just an interface to GPT. It's not. It's the same as saying an app is just an interface to Mac OS. GPT or the large language models are the new electricity. They're the new computer, right? That's just the foundation model upon which you're starting to build a new system, a new platform, a new, Absolutely. A new world. Absolutely. I don't talk about, I did that in, in a computer anymore, right? Nobody does that. Of course, it was done in a computer. And very soon, you're not going to say, oh, that was that done using a large language model or AI? Yes, it was. And a computer and electricity and, you know, all the human ingenuity that led up to that. So we have a lot of Luddites kind of going, it's AI. It will become a given. It's still not there. We started solving our own problem and we realized that there are other people out there that have the same problem. So... I guess that's the best way of going about it when you're creating a new product, you know, create something that people want, start with yourself and start measuring that appetite. Are people willing to pay for it? And it turns out people are. We've been fortunate enough to have coined a new sector, synthetic research, and really very focused on creating the best possible interviews. They're not really two competing visions, but there are two visions here. One is I'd really like every business out there to have a synthetic mirror to their existing customers. You know, you all have customers, they're organic customers. What if you had the synthetic mirror of those customers that everyone in your team could audit, could ask questions, could interact with at any given point, right? Where you don't have to wait for, let's wait for UX or let's wait for market research to come in before we actually can make some decisions. What if that- Like the idea process, of a mirror. Mirror is an excellent way to put it. I think it's a nice analogy. There's that way of looking at it. And we feel very comfortable with where we are right now with regards to that synthetic to organic parity. Synthetic users is born out of this need that we've had 
right now it's used by a few thousand companies already. We're putting up a paywall. You know, it's it's thought up 101. We're just going by the book, creating the community around it, ensuring that businesses can actually accelerate their internal innovation by having that synthetic mirror. On the other end, you have this vision where as a product creator who's been doing this for, for quite a long time now, there is a desire to accelerate the failure rate of product development. And mm-hmm. in order to do so, you need to fail fast in order to learn. You don't want to take like six months and then discover you're going to fail. I'd rather fail in six minutes, <laughs> right? Like, mm-hmm. how do you compress right, right. that time? What these paradigm shifts allow us is the ability to compress time in many ways because of energy efficiency. So the vision here really is right now we are, we're testing desirability. Very soon we'll start testing usability. That means you'll be plugging in your Figma files or your whatever, if you're into marketing, your billboards and your synthetic users will be telling you, no, 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 you need to move that button more to the left. Or you need to change that copy slightly so that we buy more of you. It's not engaging enough. And that's done in real time. Right now, we're still in that stage where it's a bit like, I don't know if you have a semi-autonomous car like the Tesla, but you still have to put your hands at, at, at the wheel. And there will come a time when you won't anymore, right? When you will basically tell look, the large language model, look, what we need is these are our, our goals. So it's very outcome-based. This is what we need to get out of this. What's the best way? What's the product that will allow us to meet these goals? And then the synthetic users will go out. They'll create a little ad for a fictitious product. They'll measure update. They'll measure um, engagement. They'll come back. They'll change it a little. They'll put it into code, um, you know, compile it, deploy it, test it out. And it'll be, you know, these cycles of product development that now take forever will literally take minutes, if not seconds. And so we'll be able to fail a lot faster and in a vision where products are creating products, right? So we can go off as the Irish do and spend more time singing with each other and having (laughs) drinks together. Singing and and singing and dancing. And being more human. I think you're a little Irish yourself. Let me let me say that you and I <laughs> like to muse poetically, uh, philosophically, and actually quite concretely. Well, being concrete and thinking ever and always about our listeners, some of whom have been with us five years following European innovation, I wanted to do a test ride. Now, if we're going to talk about Tesla, I wanted to test drive synthetic users. And we actually do have a small little problem here in the agency. We're a digital marketing agency in Barcelona. And that is to uh, get more subscribers on our YouTube channel. So, you know, I set up that little focus group of synthetic users. What I really appreciated in the experience with the speed, of course, but, you know, suddenly there's a report with these synthetic users, each of which has his or her name, history, business curriculum, resume, as we say in the U.S., uh, location. And then not only is there a verbatim of uh, these users following the questionnaire that has been created and giving their personal opinion, there is also a summary at the end. My team found it very interesting. Um, actually, they touched upon a couple challenges in the area of increasing your subscribers in your YouTube channel that we had not considered, and it was very fast. And if that's just the beta state, it's already quite useful. It was very interesting for me to just hear you say that 
your vision, or maybe it's even reality now, is that they actually co-create, they draw up some creativity, then they go through phases of iteration together, and then bring a final proposal to a human team. Brilliant, brilliant. Would you like to uh, expand on that? I think if you look at innovation and the fabric of our capitalistic society, our SMEs, small to medium enterprises, um, spread out throughout the various nations that we inhabit, SMEs don't do enough research. We know that. We know that for a fact um, through various studies that have been made public. And they don't do research because they don't know how to, because they think it's too expensive, because it is too expensive if you are going to do it properly. And so just the ability to democratize access to research, to data, to interviews that will allow you to build in much better decision-making is just invaluable. The amount of waste that is created because of little research and because people just think they know better and they're right. Let's go with this idea. Uh, why? Why go with that? Have you really tested it? Oh, no, no, it takes a bit. Maybe let's just do it and then, and then we'll see. There's a lot of this going on and it's just an absolute waste. So the ability to democratize research is a mission worthwhile, right? And we are perfectly aware that although we are from a foundation model perspective, we're very agnostic. We sit on the shoulders of giants. Since that seminal paper, Attention is All You Need, came out all those years ago. There's so much progress has been made by people that you will never know their names. Um, who, if I was to ask most people, give me one author of that paper, most people couldn't name one. And yet it's that paper that, you know, in many ways has, has spawned this, this new paradigm shift and this revolution. So, I think we need to take advantage of the fact that some very fine people have put in a lot of time, create these tools that are changing the world, changing the way we operate. And if we can make that change a more efficient one on the research front, then yeah, then I think it's a life worth living. Well, we will definitely put up a link to synthetic users on the blog. I think we are in a fascinating time. I think you are really leading the charge and innovating into uncharted territory, which will be a benefit to many, many people. And allow me to say that I do believe that people will remember your name, Kwame, and your team's names. Thanks again for joining us. And we hope to see you again very soon. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Remember to check out our podcast directory at podcast.bevirtual.com. You'll find five seasons with over 50 episodes, including very interesting chats with European innovators, marketers, and entrepreneurs. And don't forget to look for the videos of our live sessions, available on the Barcelona Virtual YouTube channel, as well as in the program notes on our blog. Thanks for listening and until next time, adios, from Spain. The BV European Marketing Podcast is brought to you by Barcelona Virtual, a European internet pioneer. To visit us, type the letter B, together with virtual.com. That's bvirtual.com.